are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land of imagination. Next stop, the Twilight Zone. place is here, the time is now, and the journey into the shadows that we're about to watch could be our journey, but it definitely was the journey of my guest tonight. When he stepped in front of the camera to play Mike Ferris in the first episode of The Twilight Zone, Where Is Everybody?, he had no way of knowing that what at that time was another job for a hard-working actor, was actually a walk into the history books. I don't think I can describe how happy I am to welcome the great Earl Holliman to the Twilight Zone podcast, but although this is the Twilight Zone podcast, going into this interview, I wanted to speak to Earl about more than just the Twilight Zone. What got him there? What else had he done? Because this is a man who stood shoulder to shoulder with the likes of James Dean, John Wayne, Dean Martin, and the list goes on and on, because he is an actor who landed in the golden age of Hollywood and took hold of every opportunity he got with both hands. Now when I spoke to Earl about setting up this interview, I don't want to embarrass him in case he listens to this, but... He mentioned a couple of things to me. He said, you know, sometimes when I get caught up in telling a story, I'll tell it for a while. But also, I'm 91 years old and some details, names and things will escape me from time to time. So that's all completely understandable. But when we did the interview, I can only describe Earl's recall as astonishing. He's referring to names, he's talking about places and dates and even conversations that happened over 60 years ago and they roll off his tongue like they happened yesterday. And what I hope he realised by the end of the call was that he was concerned about talking too much but to be honest I hung on every word from this wonderful man and his magical stories of a place and a time that just doesn't exist in the same way anymore. But to hear Earl talk about them still, with such fondness and enthusiasm, I would have happily filled ten podcasts with his stories, and it still wouldn't have been enough. So now the only person talking too much is me. Let's go over to the man himself, because the place is here, and the time is now for us to meet the Twilight Zone's first lead actor, Mr. Earl Holliman. I know that you wanted to be an actor since you were six years old, didn't you? First of all, I have to, I have to preface this by saying I really am one of the lucky people in the world. I, I uh, 
first of all, I was the baby of seven. My real father, supposedly my real father, died six months before I was born, and the other six children were put in an orphanage. Uh-huh. The mother was, uh, she was, um, she had been married off when she was 15, and now she was 30. And uh, she had, in the meantime, had uh, seven kids, you know. Wow. And uh, the, the husband, the husband had been, he was considerably older than she, and had, had immediately, her brothers had kind of pushed her off into this wedding, and uh, uh, immediately he put her to work in the fields, and, you know, she went out and pulled cotton, and, and uh, I mean, uh, I, you know, worked in the cotton fields and did all the work, and then went home and cooked the meals, and, you know, and then had six kids in between, you know. She, mm-hmm. And she had to wear dresses down to her ankles. He didn't wear her to show her ankles. This was a, a hell of a life, you know. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he died, and uh, in the meantime, uh, as I say, the other children were placed in the orphanage, and then the Hollemans, Henry and Velma Holloman, Henry Holloman works in the oil fields, mm. and uh, they were traveling through that area of Louisiana and visiting uh, um, Velma Holloman's, uh, when I say my, now this is my, now will be my mother, so when I say my mother or father, I'm talking about the Hollemans. Yeah. And my mother, uh, her her baby sister Fanny lived out, also lived out there in the woods, and there was a farmer, and all, it was a poor family, doing it, as I said, during the depression, and they were they came to visit, and Thelma Holloman was unable to have children, and they wanted a child very much. And uh, Fanny, her her young sister, told her about this baby that was up for adoption. And so she and the two of them got in the car and they drove to to outside Delhi, Louisiana, uh, out in the woods, Waverly. It was a it was not really a, t- a town. It was just a cotton mill and a little and a company store, you know, on the, yeah. on the highway. And uh, they uh, they went to check and meet meet the woman who had the baby, and that was. Uh, uh, her name was uh, Molly Frost, and uh, they took me. They, uh, she took me. I had I was a very sickly-looking thing. Apparently, I had been. I think I weighed eight pounds. I was born and six pounds. I was a week old. You know, I was losing weight, and I had. I was, and they immediately took me to the doctor. The doctor said, uh, "You don't have a baby here. You have a funeral expense." Yeah. And uh, my aunt Fanny said, uh, "Well, if he's going to die, he's going to die. I'm going to give him a dose of castor oil." And she did. <laughs> and uh, the next day, she had a baby. You know, she had her own baby, who was a week older, who she was nursing. So she nursed me on breast and, and little Catherine there, and for a week or two. And by golly, uh, you know, so I, I grew up. I, I made it. You know, so that was a big start. You know, it was the first time my luck was going. Sure, what a lucky guy I was going to be. You know, the fact that the Hollowman took me in, yeah. raised me, and gave me an incredible life uh yeah but all my life i only i don't know where it came from uh i i love to go to the picture what we call picture shows in those days mm-hmm. and uh, I, I i i think i never missed a, you know never missed a picture show if i could help it you know i just love them and i grew up and people would say what are you going to be when you grow up son i said oh, i'm going to hollywood and be a movie star i was five or six years old you know? yeah, yeah. and i never stopped i never stopped with a dream you know uh, my dad died when I was 13. He had 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 been injured working for the golf, and he had epilepsy, and uh, I mean developed epilepsy, uh-huh. and so he couldn't work anymore, even though he looked like a very healthy man. And uh, we had ended up, uh, we lost everything we had, and we ended up living in this little lake, on Cattle Lake. And in this little fishing shack, I mean, it was a one-room shack. It had a, a kitchen area, like an enclosed uh, porch kind of kitchen. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, 
you know, we bathed uh, in number three wash tubs in, in, the, in the winter, and, and we bathed in the lake during the summer and used, you know, used uh, ivory soap because it floated. You know? So <laughs> uh, <laughs> we didn't lose any soap. But it was a hell of a wonderful way to grow up. I mean, I I, I loved it. I, I you know, I, we were right on the lake and we we swam and we we fished and and I had a lot of friends and I I, was, I always loved school. I like loved school and I I was a good student. I was a straight A student mm-hmm. and I just I, I just had wonderful. And I remember um, uh, I don't know. I I introduced the idea when I was about eleven. We had lost it anyway. I had uh, I had a couple of buddies and we talked about we were going to make a home movie. We were going to get a movie camera somewhere. We were going to, we had this whole idea about I had read it in a magazine or something, and so we were going to try to do that. Yeah. Never happened, of course, but, <laughs> but we really worked on trying to do that. We we're going to make a movie, yeah. but I always wanted to be. I ended up, of course, after my dad died when I was when I was thirteen. My dad died when I was fourteen. My, my mom and I went moved to Shreveport. She got a job. In a in a, uh, a cafe, it served uh, the other place for a servicemen after 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 curfew. The only place they could eat in yeah. Shreveport because it was the bus, little bus station to get them back across the river to Barksdale Field, and they could be there. Uh, they weren't AWOL if they were there all night and, and took the first bus back to the base. So consequently, anyway, she worked there, and I worked for the longest time as an usher at the Strand Theater after school, mm. and that was wonderful. I saw a lot of movies, you know, and. Uh, uh, and of course, uh, at this time I was 14. Then I became assistant student assistant manager. It was called. You know, okay. I was making 25, 25 cents an hour. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> big money. But my mother, but my mother was working in this damn rest, little restaurant. You know, it was like a home body restaurant. The biggest meal, the most expensive meal, was 25 cents. You know, so you can imagine. Yeah. And uh, uh, it was run by mom and pop Flynn and. Uh, and she worked from four in the afternoon till till uh, uh, no, I'm pardon me, from eight in the morning to four in the afternoon. She made a buck a day and two meals, uh-huh. and I'd come in and eat the donuts and eat most of her salary, you know. And <laughs> but uh, uh, then I finally I worked in the magic shop next door, and uh, Riccardo and Cleo had been in Hollywood. They were magicians, a man and his wife, and mm. and they used me. I they I worked on the stage with them, you know, and some of the. Per, Appearances they did. You know, I worked in their shop, and I, you know, I wasn't getting paid. I was working for magic lessons, and this, I was 14 at this time. You know, yeah. and uh, um, but anyway, then I I um, I quit. I ended up I, I I ended up working at the night shift where my mother worked, and I went on at 11 o'clock and worked till eight, and she relieved me, and I managed to save 70 dollars, and it was from that. Uh, one of the soldiers there uh, heard heard me say I was going to go to uh, California. I was going out to Los Angeles to Hollywood, and he said, "Well, he said, he was he and some other guys." He said, "Here, here's the address of my folks. He stayed at their place in El Monte. Uh, it was a suburb." And uh, uh, what he really meant was, they'll rent you a room. You know, where they have a room for rent. And uh, anyway. I I sort of ran away. I'm just bubbling on here. Stop me when you when no, you want going. to take a this, breath. This is gold. <laughs> but uh, I uh, I was I was determined to get. Oh, I had a buddy named Robert Ship. Robert Ship 
was not uh, was prone to exaggeration. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were in the same class. But he gone out to visit his mother. He was separated from his father. His mother was out in California, in Los Angeles, and he came back talking about how he'd done this and all kinds of things, and and uh, uh, how uh, and how he'd been uh, in a little movie. He really did you know, a lot of little fibbing, and uh, but he got me all excited about. It. There was a thing at the time the war was on, and there was a thing at the time. In the meantime, my dad had died, of course. I think I said uh-huh. that. Yeah. But there was a program in L.A., um, in Los, maybe all of California, I don't know. But um, because of the the need for for people to work in, in, in the defense plants, et cetera, if you were 16 years old, you could go to school four hours a day and then work for four hours a day in the defense plant, I was told. Uh-huh. So I, uh, I went up to visit my, my mother's sister, my another aunt, an older sister, in Arkansas. And then from there, uh, I uh, left and and uh, I called my mother and told her I was going to hitchhike out to California. And uh, my and uh, my aunt said she thought it was okay. And uh, anyway, I, I remember I left. I sent a card to these people saying, I'm on my way. I knew your son told you, told me about you. I'm on my way. Yeah. They were expecting a soldier, you know. <laughs> uh, I had my fifth, the second day I took a bus to Texarkana, Texas, and from there I was I hitchhiked. And, I, and the second day on the road was my 15th birthday, you know. Wow. Uh, so I was headed for California. I was going to Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. And I did get out here. I was out here for a whole week. Uh, and of course, I walked around, you know, I went out, uh, well, I, I, the first day I, I got the old Pacific Electric Railroad, the uh, trolley car and the street car, and went into Hollywood. And I went, you know, when I went seeing everything I could see, I walked from Paramount Gates, uh, Columbia's Gates, you know. Uh, anyway, I ended up in front of Grauman's Chinese Theater, and even then, in those days, it was a huge tourist attraction. People always walking in the lobby, I mean, in the uh, foyer, putting their feet in the, in the star's footprints and all that sort of thing, uh, trying to step on them. So I, I went there, and I had bought dark glasses because I equivocated dark glasses with movies. I thought that, well, that's, I associated dark glasses with movie stars and not only that but i thought you know i know i knew i was going to be crossing the desert so uh-huh. so i had my glasses on and as i walked back and forth in front of gorma's chinese and i remember having this thought it's embarrassing but i remember having this thought i i had my glasses on and my little short sleeve uh, so white shirt and uh-huh. walking back and forth in front of gorma's chinese and i thought i wonder who they think i am <laughs> <laughs> I really did. I thought, God, <laughs> I wonder who they think I am. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> uh, anyway, what's what's so ironic? And, and this is—I always when I tell this story, this story, uh, I, uh, it, it's like a dream come true story. Yeah. Now, yeah. when I walk there, that you know, we have something called the Walk of Fame. Have you have you been to Los Angeles or Hollywood? I have once, yeah, a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, around Gromish Chinese and Hollywood Boulevard and, and certain area streets, and they have this, what they call a walk of fame. Yeah. And there are all these stars in, in the uh, cement and in the sidewalk uh, for, you know, for the movie stars and That's for, right. you know, various, you, you get, you know. <clears throat> well, in front of Gromish Chinese or, uh, and is uh, one, of, one of the ones is uh, Greta Garbo's, and you step Greta Garbo and you step over the next one and you step on... Joel McRae's. Well, Joel McRae and Barbara Stanwyck uh, were um, were the two stars. The first time my name appeared above Maine Thailand Star Billing was a Western called Trooper Hook. And it was uh, uh, Joel McRae, Barbara Stanwyck, and Earl Holliman. 
so that was that was exciting from Greta Garbo. But now, uh, what's ironic and what's so wonderful is that between Greta Garbo and and Joe McRae is Earl Holliman's star. Wow. So you know, I so it's just, just to me, it's so amazing. You know, it's yeah. just so amazing that that, that this silly kid walking in front of Gomez Chinese, and now he has his own star there where he was walking you know, and dreaming about all that. The dreams come true. You know, you can if you stay long enough, hang long enough, and work at it hard, and get a good lucky break. Yeah, yeah. But that break is so important. Yeah. Anyway. That was my anyway the first trip, and then from Hollywood I went back home. I mean I didn't have any star without a star. I went back home, and uh, went back to high school. And three months later I got my mother. My mother was going to get remarried. I got my mother to sign a thing saying I was seventeen. I convinced her that if I got into the navy I could finish high school in the navy, and they wouldn't send me over school over overseas until I was of, of age. And um, she bought it. And uh, I, I went, I joined the Navy. I was back in California. I went to boot camp. I was now still 15 years old. I was in the Navy, U.S. Navy. Mm-hmm. I went to boot camp. And then from San Diego, I came up to L.A. to go to uh, uh, radio school. There was a big uh, armory, a uh, huge armory that was uh, naval armory that was uh, turned into a, a communication school for for radio operators and also signalmen. And uh, every other night we had five hours liberty and I would hightail it. Up, up Hollywood Boulevard, and I would go to, directly to the Hollywood Canteen. <laughs> and you know about the Hollywood Canteen, I'm sure. And, uh, God, I, the first night there, I danced with a little Virginia. You know, when I, I cut in, I danced with her for about uh, 15 seconds, you know, <laughs> before somebody else cut in. But little Virginia Weidler, do you remember Virginia Weidler? And the women, she was the daughter of Norma Shearer. Okay. If you ever saw that movie, I'm sure. And, uh, oh, but she did a lot of things, you know, she was under contract to MGM. But uh, also on some one of those on some of those nights, I remember there also I I had a conversation with Joan Crawford. I mean, I stood in line to get her autograph. Wow. There was a milk. If you were a serviceman or a GI, you, you know, it was all free. Everything was free. There was no drinking or there was no liquor in the place. Uh-huh. But there was a big every night you could dance, either dance or sit down on the dance floor, and there was some kind of a big show. Either Red Skelton or somebody was doing a big uh, radio show from there, or somebody was a, a bunch of stars were appearing. It was marvelous. Yeah. It was, and uh, they'd, they'd have you go to the milk bar and, and uh, our soft drink bar, and, and you'd. Uh, and I remember talking to Joan Crawford, and and she had. I said, "Would you sign an autograph?" And he, she said, "Who's it to?" I said, "To uh, uh, Ruth Eleanor." Uh, she said, "And what would you like me to say?" Henry. And she was my first name. Mm-hmm. She said, "How about Henry?" Uh, was here at the Hollywood Canteen and uh, misses you very much, Joan Crawford. I said, that's wonderful. So I said, would you, would you do another one? She said, yes, who's this to? I said, this is to Marcel. And she said, what, what can I say to Marcel? I said, oh, the same thing. She said, oh, a wolf, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, this, this is my conversation with Joan Crawford. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I also had a nice long talk with, uh, not a long talk, a long conversation with Susan Hayward. And, you know, yeah. I mean, you, you could talk to the stars who were there, you know. And, and, and I remember and some of the people I talked to and uh, saw there years later I would work with, of course. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, my God, you know, it was anyway, just, just incredible. I've had a, such an incredible life. And everything, everything, it seems like everything has been... Uh, like uh, you know, instead of turning right, going left, and that happened to be the way to go. You know, yeah, yeah. it was always I always seemed to somehow make the right decision, and and luck I'd, out of nowhere. I, 
you know, when I was going to the pastor in the playhouse, uh, well, this was the second, I, after the name of my mother told him after I was in a year, she found out they were going to send me overseas, and she wrote and told him, and they, they sent me home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went back to high school, finished high school, played the lead in the senior play, and I was the president of the senior class. Yeah. And then I went back into the Navy for two more years. And then while I was in Norfolk, Virginia, uh, uh, they had me on temporary additional duty off my ship. Um, and I was uh, handling, oh, they sent me to teletype school as well. So I was handling messages for all the ships at sea, and I mean, all the, pardon me, all the ships in dock. And they, they formed a theater on the base. This is, Norfolk, Virginia was a big city. I mean, thousands, of, you know, hundreds of thousands of servicemen, you know, I mean, I mean Marines and uh, uh, sailors and uh, uh, incredible. It really was. Yeah. And they formed this, uh, on the base, they formed this uh, theater for, uh, of, uh, to do plays. They had this wonderful woman who came from the Northwestern University and uh, uh, Stoner, Mrs. Stoner. And, uh, uh, they did the You Can't Take It With You as their first play on the uh, theater there on the base. And they had uh, auditions open to all military personnel in the area. And I auditioned, and I got the part of uh, the Jimmy Stewart role, you know, the uh, the league, young league guy, you know. Right. And, uh, and then after that, they did another one called uh, Mr. and Mrs. North, and I got to play Mr. North. Uh-huh. And all the time I was, I, I, they, they were working around me on the, you know, I, they were arranging my schedule so I could still do, do my work, you know. And, and but, uh, but anyway, I, I'm this is long and boring. And I'm so sorry no, to do all this to you. Well, the thing is, Al, this is this is a time, you know, in movie history that is so interesting to to so many people because you know they call it the golden age of Hollywood, and it, it really was, wasn't it? The, the names you've mentioned so far. These are legends, aren't they? Well, you know, uh, yes, they are. And you know, what's so interesting is that uh, you know, what's so interesting is that when I was doing Police Police Woman, this is that we're jumping way ahead of now. Mm. But when I was doing Police Woman, uh, this uh, buddy of mine, another buddy, uh, and I, uh, and, and the, well, there were three, four, one, two, three, four. There were four of us, five of us all together, yeah. actors. That, uh, 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 but I was the only one who had a series at the time, or was working regularly. And, uh, we, we, uh, opened this theater, and, uh, well, my, my buddy, uh, Pat Baldoff, former, he was in Korea and all, and he'd come back, and he was a, he was an actor, an actor studio guy, and, uh, uh-huh. uh, director and actor, and, and he'd been, he'd done a lot of, uh, dinner theaters around the country, and, 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 uh, small theaters, and, and as an actor, but also as a director, and he always wanted to run the best. He always wanted had a dream about having the best dinner theater in, in the country, and he would scout around. Well, he came up with a, a dinner theater that had been built in San Antonio, Texas, uh, on the outskirts uh, uh, on, the, on the second rim around the city, and uh, it was a terrific theater. And, uh, and we all uh, we all bought it. We all wow. became obviously sixty percent owner of it, you know, and, yeah. and uh, uh, consequently. Called Old Holland Association in a Playhouse. And you know, I mean, we had June Allison, Lana Turner, uh, Cesar Romero came three times, uh, Van Johnson came twice, uh, and they'd go for five. We had uh, 52 weeks a year, you know, and we ran our shows for five, for five weeks. Uh-huh. And then in the summer, we'd do a 10 week musical, you know. And uh, we had, uh, Christ, incredible, incredible uh, talent, you know, people. Yeah. It was so interesting. People I talked to, people I worked with, people. I've been in awe of you for years, and suddenly, I mean, it sounds, you know, well, I was suddenly like, we were like paying their salaries. 
know, <laughs> it, was, it was amazing. But, you know, it just, I tell you, I, as I said, I have been so lucky all my life. You know, it just everything has worked out beautifully. For yeah. you know, I, I could go on and on and bore the hell out of you. You know, <laughs> I don't think that's possible. But I, I was watching a couple of your movies um, over the past couple of weeks. I watched uh, the Big Combo, which you did with Lee uh-huh. Van Cleef early on. Right, and uh-huh. uh, I watched the Rainmaker too. You, you did you watch the Rainmaker recently? Yeah, yeah. Uh huh. Well, that that was my favorite favorite film. That was my favorite film. Is that the one you, that really put you on the map? Do you think that was that was my sixteenth movie? Mm. I had started out. Uh, I would like to tell you how I got into into pictures. I mean, if sure. you, yeah. Uh, I was at the Playhouse, and uh, one of my one of. Uh, um, oh, Neil Levitt was also in the class with me. He had, he had been in, in that Norfolk uh, Naval Theater. That's where we met. Mm. And we worked together in both those two productions I told you about. But I, I was discharged a year before he was. And when he got out, I had already been to USC for, for a while and decided that's not what I wanted out here. I came out to USC mm-hmm. because I, I realized that William C. DeMille was the head of the, the department. And I thought, well, he's obsessed uh, with DeMille's brother. That must mean a lot. You know, yeah, I, I yeah. didn't know it meant butkus nothing. You know, <laughs> but uh, but uh, in fact, I only saw him once when I was interviewed, and that was the end of him. You know, yeah. but uh, but I decided after a while, I thought I'm really not getting the kind of training I want as an actor. And uh, I mean, I love the education, but the other mm-hmm. stuff was anyway. Uh, so I went to work in the end. Uh, I went to work uh, at Blue Cross so in those in those days, but everything was done by hand. You know, as a claims adjuster, I would go around and, and go through the files. You didn't have a computer and all that stuff. You had to look everybody up. Right. But I worked there for, uh, until the beginning of the next season. I had been accepted at the Pasadena Playhouse on the GI Bill. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's where I really got uh, my training, you know. Uh, and that was I, that was terrific. You know, that was yeah. wonderful. And and, and uh, uh, Neil Levitt and I ended up, Neil Levitt came out and he went off to school and we became, we were in the same class. And there was a guy named Art Estrada who wanted to lift his hairline and somebody had suggested suggested uh, the barber at Paramount, uh, named Victor, and uh, he was going there. He and Neil was, uh, were going, and they said, hey, you want to go? And they were going to go to Paramount. They were, he, all he had to do was go through the gate and uh, tell them he had a, an appointment with Victor the barber, because uh-huh. you couldn't get in the gates, you know, at Paramount or any studio. You didn't walk in the gate, you know, unless you had yeah. some business there. Uh, so it was wonderful. We went to the gate, and he said, "Well, I'm on my way to see Victor the Barber," and then he just uh, he just went right in. And uh, I had a friend I'd been in the Navy with the first time, uh, who now was out of the service, and he was working in the, in the mail room. Uh, uh, Lloyd Noakes and uh, I, 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 we ran into him there, and he told us where they were shooting certain scenes. And after 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 the uh, after the initial uh, uh, interview with uh, Art and, and the Barbara, uh, we went around and uh, and we were on sets, and we went, went around, just opened the doors, and went on the set watching uh, Alan Ladd shoot the branded. And uh, anyway, that's where I learned. It was this, uh, that's one of the lucky things. I mean, if it hadn't been for Art, I just tried to wanting to lift his hairline. I wouldn't have known how to get into Paramount Studios, <laughs> but, but I used that later yeah. on. I used it a lot, 
Right. And uh, I used to go when I was working after I after I got out of, out of after I got out of school in the Playhouse. I was working at North American uh, as a template maker. I was building saber jets, mm. and uh, on on uh, about once a month or every six weeks, I'd take off and go to Paramount, and I'd, I'd wave myself in. I'm just going to see Victor the Barber, you know? <laughs> And I I never saw Victor the Barber, but I did see a lot of wonderful stuff. I yeah. I walked into the set while Kirk Douglas was shooting. Billy Wally was directing him on the scene for the for the. Uh, the well, that picture had a couple of different names, but the one where the guy was trapped in a cage and a cave, and he was a reporter. And I mean, it was called oh God. Now I can't think of the name of it. But it was a big, big film of, mm. of theirs. And uh, uh, I, I later, ironic, you know, later on, of course, I was going to work with Kirk Douglas twice and gunfight at the OK Corral on the last train from Gun Hill. You know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but at that time, I stood in awe watching him. I watched uh, Lawrence Olivier and Jennifer Jones do a scene for Sister Carrie. Wow. Um, uh, you know, I, I I would go around from set to set. It was it was exciting. I was you know, and that was, and I, I was sitting there while Jose Ferrer, who had just won the Academy Award for uh, um, uh, like Serrano de Bergerac, exactly Serrano de Bergerac, <laughs> yeah. And uh, anyway, and watched them, and then I don't know. I was, but but that's what I used to do. And while I was on the lot, there was a young actress I'd been in class with at the Playhouse named Doreen Martin, and she introduced me to uh, to we were all talking in a group. And she introduced me to Pat Ball, to uh, uh, Paul Nathan, whom I spoke about earlier. And and uh, when I go back every time I went to the studio, I'd always drop in on Paul and you know, and, and kid him and say, "When are you going to put me in pictures?" You know, and you. And we became good friends. We had a similar humor, and we had, we enjoyed each other. And, we, and, he, and he turns out to really like my best friend. They were doing a bunch of little picture called Scared Stiff with Martin and Lewis. Yeah. He said, look, he said, it's, it's just a one-liner, but, uh, you know, so uh, so he cast me uh, as this um, uh, elevator operator. And I, uh, Dean Martin stepped out of the, no, first of all, it was Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis stepped out of the elevator and said, which way is room 1401? I said, straight down the hall and turned to the left. Uh-huh. Then Dean Martin did it a little later, stayed down the hall and turned to the left. And that's all I had to do. Then I, later on, you can see me in, a, in, a, in the crowd in another scene. I had two days' work on it. Yeah. But, uh, uh, when I was finished with that, I said, uh, you know, he sent me over to see the other two casting guys, and they were on, on their way to uh, cast a picture called The Girls of Pleasure Island. They, they needed, the next day, they needed 25 guys, uh, Marines, selling up at uh, three girls, English girls in the window. Uh, and uh, Audrey Dalton was one of them. There were three girls from England who had come over here to do this film. Okay. Paul gave me a good send-off. I mean, a good, you know, to the guys, and and said they said, well, okay, uh, and they sent me over to the. They said the only thing is you got to get a haircut. Well, now I'm going to meet Victor the barber, you know. <laughs> finally, <laughs> I just had a haircut, but not from him. But they sent me yeah. over and they said, give him a give him a GI. Well, that's another lucky thing. When I got out of the the, the chair. I had hair about a quarter of an inch long that hung down like bangs in the, around the front of my forehead, on my forehead, uh-huh. and it was like a GI Butch haircut. And it was suddenly with my big ears and my two little eyes and my 52 front teeth, and, you know, <laughs> I suddenly looked like a character. I was, I, you know, all this time I lost all the what, what I thought was the, were the good looks. <laughs> and suddenly I was a, a real character actor. Well, it was the luckiest thing that ever happened to me. It took me 16 pictures to get rid of that look. <laughs> I know, I, I constantly, you know, was cast as, as this funny-looking guy. Yeah. You know, as a matter of fact, um, anyway, I went on the set the next day, and uh, I... 
had a ball. There were 25 guys. One of the extras was a guy named Robert Fuller, who later became a, a well-known uh, cal- uh, actor, you know, television uh, series actor. Yeah. Uh, but there were four of us uh, bit players. They wanted because they wanted the bit players to be able to to uh, have a if they had to throw a line to somebody they had you had to be a bit player you know if they gave you a line and uh so the other words you could just yell up ad lib kind of stuff so i was having a ball you know i was uh, i was i remember yelling oh i was i was really a hammy you know hammy. i was yelling up come on down baby daddy won't buy it all that ridiculous <laughs> you know it's all that ridiculous stuff yeah. and uh, but uh, but when they saw the rushes fall into the rushes you know just uh, to see what what happened and, you know what the rushes are you know the next day they run yeah, the, yeah. the film they had shot the day before and uh, he said he said I really he said you know you really come off on screen he said uh, he said I think they liked you I got the sense they really liked you in the uh, in the in the dailies you know and it was all a bunch of guys you know but but you but stood out he said he said you should go over and talk to the assistant director and tell them that you you know that you understand they liked you in the rushes and that you uh, to get a start you'd be willing to work for scale you know mm-hmm. and uh, you could they could cast you and you you could be around anytime they needed a familiar face that have you there and they. And I did exactly that, and of course uh, the guy said, "Yeah." The assistant director said, "Yeah, I liked you." He said, "I like that other little guy too, Ross Bagdasarian, who became later known mostly in this country for uh, he was an actor, but he also uh, was a songwriter. He wrote uh, all those Alfred, Alfred, Alfred the Chipmunk songs, you know. Oh wow! Okay. Uh, if you remember that, yeah, uh, yeah. you know. Uh, anyway, um, but so he put us both on on the film and then used us, you know, all through the picture. And then the story began to snowball about this guy with the funny-looking haircut who had been picked out of a crowd scene. <laughs> and uh, I got I got a call from an agent. And then then Paul spoke it to me to to two of the big guys. The big guy at one of the big guys at uh, William Morris, Jimmy Townsend, and one of the big guys at Sam Jaffe, which was Phil Gersh, both top agents. Yeah. And they gave me a big song. He gave him a big song and dance about what a, what a good job I'd done. I'm so scared stiff and all this stuff. <laughs> and anyway, I I made up a story and and women and, and and acted a part i mean i was some, i was a lot you know I, actually i was a little shy but but mm. you know i had to get over that so i had created this guy I was i was now working in a, and i was I, at that time i was working in uh, also i would uh, uh, if i took if i got a regular job i'd have to leave my uh, i mean if i got a picture i'd have to leave a regular job i had yeah, a yeah. Uh, I was uh, now selling. I was in I was in uh, Edge of Beverly Hills, and we were working in a little plant where we made oxygen therapy units for people with lung diseases. And anyway, um, and I, I went and I told them about how I was working to be the president of this organization, and I was going to, you know, I was really gung ho. And I, I don't know. Anyway. But Jimmy Townsend said to me, William Marsh, he said, you know, I, I like you. He said, I'd be willing to sign you. He said, but he said, I'd like to change your name a bit. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, uh, he said, uh, Holloman's a hard name to remember. You know, I said, well, you know, he said, we're working on it. Anyway, I left his office and I went directly to the, uh, uh, to meet Sam, uh, to meet, uh, Phil Gersh right. at the other office. And, uh, at the end of our conversation, I did this, pull the same act with him. And at the, at the end of the conversation, uh, he said, I'd like to sign you. He said, but I, 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 I think I'd like to change your name. I said, I know Holland was a hard name to remember. He said, no, no, Holland was a good name. He said, I, Earl. He said, I don't like Earl. <laughs> you know, so so I decided that moment to keep my name, you yeah. know, yeah. not to change anything. But he took me out. Uh, within two days, he took me out to 20th Century Fox 
I met uh, Robert Wise, who was just about to direct uh, uh, an action film starring uh, Richard Widmark called uh, uh, Destination Gobi. Mm-hmm. And it was all took place in the Gobi Desert, supposedly. And uh, there was about seven uh, Navy uh, weathermen who were out in the desert, you know. And uh, we we get involved with Mongols and all kinds of things. It was a very exciting film. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got cast. They cast me. They, and it's funny that uh, when they were putting when they were trying on wardrobe and they, they put a hat on me and and the producer turned to the director and he said are you sure you want to use it and he said that way you lose the hair you don't see the hair <laughs> so I mean, that's what I'm telling you about the hairline you yeah. know about the funny looking haircut uh, so that's how I got into pictures and from then on it was just one one thing after another you know and, and when uh, this, uh, the thing about that when it was, I was doing that Gunfight the OK Corral and I'd heard about uh, the Rainmaker. I mean, I knew about the Rainmaker, and I'd gone to see it on the on the, on the stage, you know. And uh, I knew they, that Albert Salmi had turned down. He he wasn't. Uh, he he told Hal Wallace he wasn't ready. He didn't want to do films at that time. Yeah. He had played uh, Jimmy on Broadway. He was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, Anyway, uh, uh, several people kept saying, you know, we just saw the Raymond. I said, what a great part for you, Earl. You know, the perfect role for you, what kind of stuff you've been doing. Uh, when the time came, I was I was working on uh, the gunfight. The, I was working gunfight the O.K. Corral. I was playing uh, uh, the deputy to, to Burt Lancaster. Nice. I was playing Charlie Bassett, his deputy. And we're down on location, and uh, uh, I had gone. I had gone uh, to George Stevens. In the meantime, I'd done Giant, of course, and uh, and George Stevens before before uh, before I got cast in this. I had gone to George because I I knew by this time I knew Hal Wallace, you know. Yeah. And uh, but Hal Wallace thought of me as uh, I was 27 at that time, and Hal Wallace thought I was too old for the Mm. part, you know. And and chronologically, I was, you know, but I I knew I could do it. But in the meantime. I went to see George Stevens, and he came out of the cutting room, and because I, he was such a nice guy. I loved working with George, and I told him about this part. And I told him how desperately I, I said, "Is it possible you could show him some of the film on Giant to let him know that I can play younger?" Uh-huh. And he said, uh, "Yeah, I'll do that." He said, "Promise me." But unfortunately, uh, there was a feud going, and had been for a long time between uh, Jack Warner at Warner's and Hal Wallace. And it was it came from the night that Jack Warner uh, when when Wallace got the, the producers uh, for I mean got the Academy Award for Casablanca, and uh, Jack Warner asked him to see it and he never gave it back to him you know <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, they, they had this little kind of running feud, and and Jack Warner wouldn't let any piece of the film of Giant off the lot. He said no. I, uh, I mean, even though it was uh, uh, Dean, it was uh, George uh, Stevens's big deal. I mean, he but but Warner's wouldn't let it off the lot. Mm-hmm. So. Paul Nathan was in uh, Hal Wallace's office when George Stevens made a call. It was very sweet of him. Yeah. He made a call to Wallace, and he and he put a big big push in for me. And Hal Wallace said, "Well, maybe." He said, "He said, I, he said, but you know, he said this character is 18 years old." And he said, "Well, he played 16 for me, uh, Hal. You know, <laughs> Wallace. I mean, uh, it was wonderful. He he really pushed me." Yeah. And and uh, Wallace said, "Well, maybe I'll test him," yeah. but that was the end of that. Never happened. Uh, I was now working, and uh, in the meantime, Hal Wallace had signed uh, Elvis Presley uh, for a multi-picture deal, 
And uh, um, uh, the guys in, in, in New York, the New York office, were pushing, desperately pushing Wallace to use him as Jimmy, as his first film. Mm-hmm. It would have been a, made a fortune, you know. Wallace would, uh, had a lot of films on him, but, but he, they wanted him to use, this, use him in this. Now, that, I, I don't know if Catherine Hepburn could have said that. I don't think she would have, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I really don't. But, but uh, I got a call from Paul. I, was, I just finished shooting a scene with, with, with Kirk Douglas, and I was all through to come back. I could come back. And Paul said, get back as quickly as you can. He said, Wallace isn't going to test you. Right. He said. He said. But he said you're going to lose this part to Elvis Presley. If you, you know, he said they're they're really pushing him for this part. He said get back as quickly as you can. He said because we can use you. We're testing uh, uh, Pat Stanley, uh, the girl who was such a hit in Fiorello in New York in the musical. We're testing her for a contract. And one of the scenes we're using is from Sons of Katie Elder. Another is from uh, I mean the scripts, the scripts that they had and the, ready to do later right. on, yeah. the pictures they would make. He said one. Is for Jim. One is the Jimmy Snooky scene in the Rainmaker where they meet, and then et cetera. He said that's the one we're going. He said that's the one we'd use you for. He said that way at least Wallace, at least he could see you in the part. You yeah. know, at least. I mean, said, so I did. Um, um, we tested. I, uh, Pat, Pat and I met, and we ran the scene, and and, uh, and, and we did the scene. And, and when they ran the rushes uh, the next day. In Richard Nash, who'd written the who'd written the play and was also doing the screenplay, uh-huh. he was sitting there with Hal Wallace, and he was sitting there with uh, um, with Joe uh, Joe uh, uh, Anthony, who was going to direct the picture. And in uh, Richard Nash pointed to me on the screen, and this was uh, one of those lucky things. He said, "That's the boy I wrote it for." Wow. Now he didn't mean me particularly, but he meant what I was doing with the part, you know. Right. And I thought, oh my God, you know, it's, uh, oh, I, I was in heaven because I thought that's it, you know, that's it. Yeah. Well, that wasn't really it. It went on for another couple of weeks, and in the meantime, I get an offer from uh, Fox to do a picture called uh, "Sound of Bugles," which was a war story with Terry Moore and, and uh, Robert Wagner. Uh-huh. And it wasn't a great, it wasn't a great part. It was, it was a nice, it was a nice part, but not a good part, not a wonderful part, not you know, nothing, nothing exciting really. Yeah. And uh, Paul called me at the office, and he said, "He said, Earl, this is." Uh, he called me at home, and uh, this was uh, uh, a few days, you know, after that. He called me one day at home. He said, "Earl," he said, uh, "I tell you what you got to do." He said, "You are uh, you are on the edge of losing this part." He said, "You know, despite what the, what the screenwriter said, you're gonna, they are pushing Wallace so hard to, to get Elvis into this movie, mm. you know." And he said, "He said, I'm going to tell you what you have to do." He said, call up Ronnie Lubin, who was representing Paramount for the Gersh office, for the, or my agent. Yeah. And he said, tell him, he's got to go to Hal Wallace and tell him that uh, Earl has been offered this great part at Fox. And he has to let them know right away he's, he's going to take the part. He said, he said uh, he's, he was so excited about playing this role, but you've kept him on. You've, you know, he said, he's, he's, he said we, we have been told uh, tonight. So he said, he said, we have to know by 6 o'clock tonight if you're going to use Earl or not. Uh, and um, Ronnie said, I can't do that. He said, I can't do that. To I can't say that to Mr. Wallace. He was scared, really scared. I said, you got to do it. you got to go and you got to do it. Paul said, you got to do it. Well, he did. And then I got a call from Paul. Mm-hmm. Paul said, Earl, 
He said, if the phone rings, don't answer it. He said, Wallace is going to try to call you. He said, if, if it rings once and then there's a pause, uh, but then, then you can pick it up. But don't don't pick up the phone today unless, it, unless it's that kind of a code. Nice. So I sat all day and I knew it, and, and um, he called me. Paul said, Wallace called him in the office and said, where is Earl? And Paul said, he's home. Uh, how? He said, well, he's not answering the phone. And Paul, Paul said to Mr. To how Wallace, he said, he doesn't want to talk to you, Hal. <laughs> <laughs> really? He said, I doesn't want to talk. He said, well, why do you want to talk to me? I mean, but knowing Wallace, I mean, he was a little perverse at times. He, yeah. he said, why do you want to talk to me? He said, because. He said, he was so excited about this part. Everybody said he's perfect for it, you know, and, 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 and the screenwriter said, that's the guy he wrote it for. Yeah. And he said, and, and Wallace Earl has been so excited all this time and preparing. And he said, it's nice. He just, he's, he realizes that, you know, you just kept him hanging. And he has this great part at Fox that he's going to accept, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, at six o'clock, the phone rang once. Then it rang again. I had to pause it, rang again. I picked up the phone, and Paul simply said, you got the part. Wow. That's how I got Jimmy, you know. <laughs> it's just it's having somebody on your side. You know? Yeah, yeah, wow. It all worked out so well. Because you won an award for the movie and everything, right? I tell you, uh, all the talk was about the Academy Awards, and I, mm. I didn't believe in taking ads, you know. I mean, they were all, always taking ads, and I said, no, if, if I deserve it, I'll get it. Yeah. You know, I mean, even the assistant director, as we were doing the last scene, he said, he said, do a good job with this scene, he said, because you're going to get an Academy Award for this part. Uh-huh. Anyway, uh, everybody seemed to think... As a matter of fact, uh, Tony Quinn, who won the Academy Award for uh, Lust for Life yeah. that year, uh, in the same category, uh, supporting, he was having. He, Paul was at the table when they were having it with Hal Wallace and 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 the agent. I mean, probably his the press agent for for Tony, because yeah. we were shooting a, a hot spell at that time, and uh, I was playing Tony Quinn's son. And uh, uh, the the press agent pointed to me. He said, "There's the there's the one. That's your competition right over there at the next table." Yeah. Well, as it turned out, I wasn't his competition because in those days, that was the last year that all the uh, the, the nominations were not made by cabinet members. The nominate well, they were voted on by cabinet members, but the nominations were made by simply by actors. Right. And uh, uh, there were like sixteen thousand members of the actors of uh, the Senior Actors Guild, and and actors are kind of known for not seeing. It. I mean, everybody can't see everything, you know. They, yeah. So uh, I, the picture came out at the end of the year. Now I got, I did get, I did beat Tony on. Uh, I mean, they had uh, Herbert Lom from from War and Peace, and uh, uh, two stars from Every Doll. Okay. And I can't know their names. Uh, but you know, I mean, and uh, and uh, Tony Quinn and, and myself, we were the five guys nominated for the Golden Globes for the supporting award. Mm-hmm. And yes, I did get it. But the night of the awards, uh, they were so sure I was going to get it. This was before, this was uh, uh, after I'd already gotten the Golden Globe or already been named to get the Golden Globe. Yeah. Uh, they sent me the, I, They had me interviewed by uh, Luella. Par- I was sitting on the couch with Luella Parsons. And uh, and the Bibi Klein, the woman from Paramount, the press department, who, t- who took me there, was to come over, go to the phone, call, get the winners, come back, and congratulate me on being nominated. That's how sure they were, you know. Wow. And she came over and she said to me, "You weren't nominated." I can't, I can't tell you what a heartbreak, <laughs> what a heartbreak that was. Wow. You know, I, I really, it was such a, oh, I couldn't, I, you know, I smiled, I, I, you know, and she commented about how, I mean, Luella just talked about how, listen, you're just getting started. Mm-hmm. She was so excited that Robert Stack had been nomin- nominated. 
Yeah. Uh, she said, oh, she, Luella said, oh, you've got years ahead of you. But what, what people don't realize is that those parts don't come along, you know. I yeah. mean, you kind of have it on the page, but you just can't make it up as you go along, you know. Uh-huh. And I, I, and I got some wonderful parts, but, but I never got a part quite as silly. And then, and it was such a terrific thrill working with Catherine Hebert and Ben Burr Lancaster. And I, and, and they were so wonderful to me. And, yeah. I, and, uh, I, I think I, I told you about Bert taking me to lunch one day, didn't I? Uh, no, no. I mean, I love the every day he read a book. Uh, when he was sitting around waiting, he 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 was such a reader and such a such a sweetheart. Really, mm-hmm. such a great guy. I I fell in love with him and and with her as well. She was so great to me. In fact, the whole fa- we we had like a big family in that movie. You know, yeah, I mean, that, yeah. it was a small cast, but we were all so close, really. And uh, and Kate was, you know, I I got to know her so well, and 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 Bert and Bert took me to lunch one day, and he was telling me I should really work out. You know, he was talking about, you know, he, he as you know, he was an acrobat. You know that. Yeah. In the in the circus, and uh, he said you work out, and he said, you know, he said you got good shoulders, and I'll never forget this, and I I couldn't help but laugh. And he said, and you got a nice little ass, <laughs> you know. So. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> oh, Brian Cash is always got a nice little ass. You, know, you had to you have to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's better than the Academy Awards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my reward. <laughs> <laughs> this is fascinating it's fascinating but you you made a, a kind of transition to television didn't you and uh, and worked a lot in television after a certain point well i did i i did but i also mixed it up with theater i mean with movies and theater as well you know yeah, and yeah. i i you know i managed to do uh um i i are you familiar with, uh, very much with tennessee williams's work Oh, I know who he is, yeah, but I, I can't say I'm that familiar with his work. One of his big hits, of course, was uh, uh, Streetcar and Desire. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, we, we did that at the 25th anniversary of, um, of it uh, at the um, big theater in downtown, you know, mm-hmm. in, in L.A. here, the music at the uh, uh, Amundsen. And uh, I, that was John Voight and Faye Dunaway, and, and then I played Mitch, the uh, Carl Malden. And Carl Malden was one of the names I was thinking of from Baby Doll. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, I, I, I did uh, Mitch, and that was a wonderful part. Yeah. And uh, and I've got a, and I had done I had done before and, and and Tennessee was there opening night. Well, he was there the night before opening. Oh, he was wow. there opening night, anyway. and uh, he was backstage. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Uh-huh. But he. Um, he um, also came when I did Camino Real, which is a wonderful, interesting play. I mean, you know, 16 blo- uh, blocks on the Camino Real. It was a wonderful play. And yeah. the, uh, I did that It was uh, at the Theater in the Round at the, um, uh, you know, also at downtown, at the same music center, the same complex. You know, they have a, that was the uh, um, uh, projected stage, you know, I mean, audience. Uh, I did uh, Kim, uh, Kilroy. Kilroy's nice. the lead. He and he's all the way, runs all over the theater. It's a marvelous part, an incredible part. Uh-huh. It's just a, a smashing role. And uh, 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 Karen Black uh, was a young uh, gypsy daughter. And and, uh, and uh, Victor Buono uh, and had a wonderful cast. I mean, Tedro. Anyway, uh, yeah, Tennessee came to see it 11 times. You know? Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah, he really did 11 times. And uh, on opening night, on the well, on, he was there as I said the night before opening on, to see the run, to see the uh, press night, the uh, press night of, of uh, Streetcar. 
And the second night was the opening night. Afterwards, you know, people standing back in the hall in the corridor behind the stage, and it's a big, it's a big, uh, a big place, it's really a huge place down there. Mm. And we're all standing in the hallways, and people talking and congratulating all this. Way. I look over, I see Tennessee looking at me uh, from a few yards away, just standing there with a big smile on his face, you know, yeah. staring at me. And he came over after a while, and he whispered something in my ear, and. Uh, you know, Mitch is not the lead guy, but but he's it's a wonderful part. You know, Carl Malden got the supporting award for it, supporting Oscar for it when he did it on Broadway. Oh, yeah. I mean, he did it in New York. Oh, he did it in the movies. Anyway, Tennessee came over at one point and whispered in my ear. He said, "You the lead man." <laughs> Uh, you're the leading man. He said, it was, it was, it was, he whispered, it was like, yeah, you're the leading man. <laughs> it was, uh, uh, as opposed to John Ford, that's what wow. I'm saying. Wow, you know? that's a compliment. And uh, it was, uh, you know, I love it. And then, oh, that, no, that was the first night, that was the first night then that he saw it. After opening night, and I, and I had it on my, on my table, I had a, a telegram from Tennessee uh-huh. uh, for opening night, you know. And I have that framed underneath the picture that we had taken that night at the party afterwards, because nobody would believe. And I had him sign it because I, no one would believe it. But it says, "Earl, you're Kilroy, you're Mitch, best ever." Wow. Well, yeah, amazing. I mean, just to have that. Is, well, it is amazing, you know. And yeah. it, I mean, it's it's. I know it sounds very hammy of me to tell you that, but it was, but I'm proud of it, you know. No, I mean, you should I just, be. I was just was so proud of that, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Anyway, I'd like to ask you about the dark side of the earth on Playhouse ninety. Oh, oh yeah. Uh huh. What I remember of it, that was even further back than. Uh, yeah. That was a year before a year before uh, before we did. Uh, yeah, but that was the first time you you kind of spoke Rod Sailing's words, wasn't it? Because that was a, a Rod Sailing play, wasn't it? Dark Side of the well, Earth. Yes, yes, I didn't know Rod Sailing at that point, but I I had uh, I had left my agent, I, I, which basically was really a mistake to leave Phil Gersh. But mm. I wanted so badly to do because I love theater, and I wanted so badly to do te- good live television, mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, the, the the best television on at the time was like Playhouse 90, which was once a week. You know, it was a 90-minute program done live, all, you know, so yeah. all over the country, a drama, you know. And uh, all really classy. And uh, uh, so I went, I, I left them and then, because MCA wanted to sign me, and uh, I went to MCA. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the very first morning, uh, they had a, they had me meet there Ethel Wynett in, in the office. Mm-hmm. Ethel Wynett was the assistant to uh, John Hausman, you know, and, uh, uh, running uh, Playhouse ninety, taking care of casting and all that. Yeah. And they cast me in the Dark Side of the Earth, and I and, and I was cast with uh, it was Rod Serling uh, uh, written, had written the script, and Arthur Penn of all people directed it. Yeah. And uh, I co-starred with uh, three Oscar winners, Dean Jagger and, and uh, Van Heflin and Kim Hunter. And it was, and it was a very classy event, you know. And, and Rod, was so, he was there for all, all read-throughs and, and uh, rehearsals. And the second day, I mean, after reading, going through the script, second day, or it, was, it was the end of the first day, or it was the second day, I'm not sure. I went up to him and I said, because, you know, writers are often unapproachable. I mean, they, yeah. you know, they, you know you, they feel like actors should stay in their own little corner, some of them, you know. Uh-huh. And, uh, 
I always, I'm never shy about making a suggestion if I have one, you know. And uh, I, I went up to Rod and, and I said, you know, I said, I feel like I'm missing a scene here. I said, I'm playing this captain who ends up, uh, who is such an admirer of this general, General mm. Van Heflin. And, I, and at the end, of course, I have to have, I have the general and the, the other two people, I mentioned Dean Jagger and Kim Hunter, have them all shot, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, so that's how I have to. Uh, you've seen it, I assume. I uh, have you. I, I've not been able to find it. I haven't been able to see it. No. Well, I, I don't know whether you have to do that, but but it's. Uh, but anyway, I, I said to him, I said I feel like I should be telling him, I'm expressing my admiration, but you know, about I, I have, what respect I have for what he did at St. Petersburg and uh-huh. and for uh, for Stalingrad and uh, all this, you know, all this. He, and he took out a. A, a pad and began scribbling, you know, and took down notes. And by golly, the next morning when I walked in, he handed me the page that he had written, uh, almost verbal, ver, almost uh, word for word. Although I'm sure it was cleaned up better than I told it to him, but, yeah. but the thoughts were all there. I'd expressed, you know. It was it's wonderful because I that was you know most writers are not that available you know they uh-huh. aren't that uh, you know they're, they're too they, they, uh, but he was so approachable and and we got along great he had a wonderful sense of humor and uh, he once said I once said well he said let me put it this way he said this is what, what I said to somebody he said let me put it this way you're wrong you know <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> But he did. He had a wonderful sense of humor, and he was such a sweetheart. He was such a delightful man. He really was. I, I had such admiration for him, and, and of course for his work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He did some wonderful some stuff, and then he and uh, he fought like uh, the devil to get that. Uh, you know, I mean, that, I didn't realize it when we were doing uh, Twilight Zone. Uh, well, what happened is, I, I think I told you, but. Uh, a year after I did that, yeah. uh, I was hired. Uh, I was uh, I was told that uh, Ethel Weiner was offering me a role in the next in the, in the playoffs. Now a year later, yeah. called uh, uh, the Return of Ansel Gibbs. I think that was the name of it. Uh, and it was uh, with uh, Melvin Douglas who played my father, and Mary Astor, though she had, well, the, the way we had those scenes together, played my mother, and and Diana Lynn uh, played the. Uh, my girlfriend or something. Anyway, but I didn't. I didn't under. I really didn't like the part that way. I mean, it was an interesting part. But I, but I said I don't really understand the character. I said it doesn't. It, it's something about the character. I don't really get it. You know. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, uh, anyway, uh, Moni James, who was the, my main agent there at the time, at the, one of my main agents, William. I just. Uh, um, MCA said, "Well, I got to tell you," she said. Uh, I, I told uh, I told them after what you said, and she said, "Well, if he doesn't do this, tell him to just forget Playhouse 90." Wow. You know, so so I did it, you know, and I, I wasn't as happy with it as I would like to have been. So I was not terrible, but it just was. I just never really understood what the hell I was doing about some of this stuff, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway, uh, that's how I ended up with. Uh, but but the nice thing here's that luck came in again. If I hadn't done it, I probably wouldn't have done Twilight Zone. Right. Because uh, it was uh, you know after rehearsing, I think I told you this. After rehearsing that one day, 
I mean, one day, one of, the, one of the first couple of days, I walked down through the parking lot to go home, and I ran into Rod, Rod Serling, whom I had not seen for a year. Mm. And that's when we began to talk, and he told me what he was doing, and you know, and, 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 and about this. And, uh, and he said science fiction, and I said, and I said, well, it's. Uh, Oh, he said, that's when he said, we've offered it to Tony Curtis or, or Tony Perkins, I can't remember which one, but uh, he said they wanted too much money, and uh, he said, I'm going to send it to you, uh, have you, have you see, read it, and uh, see if you want to do it, or something to that effect. And I and I didn't. I think I told you having having been in uh, Forbidden Planet, mm. I thought, well, another you know another uh, uh, science fiction show with thirty guys and a, and a spaceship. Mm. You know, so when I got it, I was just fascinated, intrigued by it. You know, I, I pushed my dinner aside and sat and read the whole script at, at supper that night. You know, uh-huh. at dinner. I mean, did it did it seem like something different at the time? Was it you know? Was it did it seem a bit out there, a bit strange, or how, how did you feel about it? Well, first of all, first of all, reading it, I, I got goose, I got uh, goose pimples reading it. You know, I mean, it was uh, just as I did today watching it. You know, I, I, I it, it was just so compelling. You know, to me, uh-huh. you know, this this guy, this loneliness of this, you know, this whole thing, and I, and and of course. I was dying to. I leapt at the leap. I leapt at it. You know, the chance to do this character. You know, and we had to read through, and that was kind of interesting. It was just because I, there was nobody there to act with, yeah, just, just me. You, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, but they uh, they read the, the stuff in between the lines. You know, the the, the, the action stuff. Yeah. And uh, I was I was a little I was a little uh, I was a little. Uh, um, I'm concerned because I'd never done. I had uh, somewhere along the line I had a two-character play. Uh, I don't know if it was before that or after that. I think it yeah. was before though. Uh, the one with Seshu Hayakawa. And I told you about that, didn't I? Mm-hmm. Well, Seshu Hayakawa. Did you see uh, uh, the bridge on the River Kwai? Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh huh. Well, he was the he was the colonel uh, oh, yeah. of the of the uh, prison camp, but he was also uh, back in the end of the twenties and in the thirties. He was a big star here in nice. Hollywood. I mean, uh-huh. he was a big star. And uh, uh, when the war broke out, he went to he went to live. He 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 was torn between Japan and between and uh, Los Angeles and the Cal- and uh, the United States. Mm-hmm. <laughs> His allegiances. So instead of that, he went to Paris and he lived in Paris all through the all through the year, all through the war till the war was finished. And but took up painting, became an artist. Uh, a very interesting man. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was coming back uh, to appear. Uh, at the uh, event for the Academy Awards at that time, but he'd be in the country uh, uh, for the Academy Awards. Anyway, it was all about that. And they had lined him up to do this play, this two-character play. Yeah. Where the where the Japanese went about the two uh, two enemies uh, the, I I bail out of an airplane a crippled plane and end up on an island in the Pacific and it turns out there's one Japanese soldier left on the island and uh, you know bitter enemies and uh, uh, first and first and how we get how how we're drawn to each other how what how close we become et cetera et cetera mm-hmm. the gimmick was that he only spoke Japanese and I only spoke English and this was for an hour. Interesting. Uh, without subtitles, as I recall. I see. Um, but uh, it was uh, it was really interesting. It was a it was a challenge, you know. Because yeah. uh, that means I we're trying to convey thoughts. And I, and it was wonderful, and uh, it was uh, it was it was an exciting thing to do, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but uh, so I think it may have come after. I'm not sure that it came after or before. Yes. <laughs> but. Uh, 
Uh, but I said, I, I, I'm not sure about that. I think it came before. I see. I see. Uh, yeah, it was it was it was a challenge, and and every time I wanted to discuss the character, I, I thought, gee, I've got to get into this, you know, I've got to do some <laughs> some heavy work here, you know, and uh, I, every time, uh, we, but we never had a chance to really discuss uh, the the acting with the director with Robert Stevenson, yeah. and uh, at the uh, we started shooting, and uh, every time I'd go up to Bob uh, to talk to him, uh, I, I may have told you this, but he. Uh, Suddenly he had to, he usually had to go answer the phone, you know, he was always on the phone. And so we never I never talked to him about the character. We never talked about the character. Wow. Uh, and it turned out he told me later as we became really good friends, he said that uh, he said every time I came up to him, he doesn't he doesn't want to talk about the character. <laughs> and he didn't uh, that's not the way he works, you know. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, he so he would he he said he would make excuses and I always have a phone call, you know, every time I approached him to talk about the character. <laughs> <laughs> so so was it difficult to do then well uh it, it was i was watching it today and 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 i don't i didn't i don't i don't i kept thinking do i look self-conscious and, you mm. know um but anyway um yeah, it was, it was not, a lot of some of the words for example i think i've said this before somewhere in print but but some of the words, like when discussing uh, uh, Scrooge and uh, yeah. a bit of a bit of wheat, I mean, it was something that I ate, you know. For uh, when I, uh, it was uh, some of the stuff, I, I felt uh, it seemed a little strange coming. The words seemed a little strange coming out of my mouth, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I, it wasn't that I, cu I couldn't do it. I, well, I mean, it wasn't embarrassing, but it was just it just you know it didn't always fit in my mouth, you know. I understand. But uh, you know, but it was, but it was. I had fun doing it. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I loved doing. It. But as you know, uh, you know, the first day we shot, uh, the first, the very first day we shot, uh, it, toward, it was getting toward dusk, and we had another another shot to finish, uh, or to do. <laughs> and as I heard the uh, cameraman reloading, I, I mean, I, I heard quite loudly, uh, uh oh, coming from the cameraman. I think I told you that, didn't I? No, no, please go ahead. It seemed that we. I see. I don't know. I never found out what the what the real story was. What had happened, but it seemed that uh, uh, somehow we didn't have a shot. Right. Uh, that we had. We were. We were going to have to go back the next day, and uh, they, they, they 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 decided we'll we'll have to reshoot this, everything we did today. And that was that first day was a killer. Uh -huh. I mean, that was a long day, and uh, you know, and as as the only actor, you were always up there, you know. Yeah. And. Uh, it was it was very tiring, but it was getting obviously getting very tired. Uh -huh. And when I went home that night, I I, I didn't feel well. And I took my temperature, and I had 102 degrees of fever. And this was falling the first day. Wow! Oh my <laughs> and I took a hot bath, and I did you know, and I did, did, did some pills and stuff. And I went back the next day. And other than being some playing uh, some stuff a little hoarse, um, I, I seemed to be okay. But but. Uh, but that tough that first day was a killer, and then have to do it all over again was uh, wow. was rough. As far as, as I recall, we had to do everything over again. Right, right. You know, I, I know the director didn't really want to talk to you about the character, but was Rod around? Did did he speak too much about it? I, uh, he was always a lot. He, he seemed to be like he was there a lot, and and I was delighted because. Because I, I, you know, I could see that he was, he, he, you know, he was pleased. Or he'd make suggestions. I suppose 
I think mostly to the director, to the cameraman, you know. Mm. I don't remember, I don't remember ever really talking to him either about it too in depth, you know. Yeah. Uh, it was just something you, you, know, you took a hold of and said, okay, let's do it, you know. Yeah. But, uh, I, you know, I do, I, I think, I, and, and this was misquoted, and, I, and I'll tell you, I did make a suggestion once when I was in the, uh, because I didn't realize yet what 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 was happening. Uh-huh. I didn't realize how, what what trauma there was behind doing this whole thing, and and how how much how much he had uh, you know how 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 hard it was, yeah, and and how much depended on it being terrific. Yeah, you know how much it depended on being something that he could sell and go back to New York and sell to the sponsors, and mm-hmm. and uh, I mean nobody. I mean if I'd known really how if if it kept if they, thank God nobody kept saying you know we got to get this right we got to get this. You know, you got to be good. You got to be wonderful. No, no, nobody did anything like that, and uh, I didn't realize, uh, you know, just how important. I, to me, it was another show. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it was a, another Rod Serling show, but I, I didn't realize that he had uh, had not yet sold it. That it was not a. It could have gone right to the shelf. You know, yeah. If it was not something they wanted to, they wanted to put on the air. I really struggled to do the right thing, and I I didn't know that when I made a suggestion. I said, you know, Rod. You know, why don't I, when I'm in the phone booth, why don't I, I'm uh, looking through it, and I, well, of course, the, um, the names, I heard them today, I had to laugh, because the names I was using were all the, my relatives' names, you know, <laughs> uh, that I was reading, supposedly. You know? Right. <laughs> um, anyhow, like Velma, Balad, Velma, you know, that's my mother, Velma, she, my, my stepfather's name is Balad, or wow. was Balad. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, after my dad died. Um but anyway, uh, I, I said, "What if I? Uh, what if I? You know, in, in my franticness or whatever, tore out a page and, and you just kind of shoved it in my pocket as I heard the, as I as I saw the police station and went over to the. I said, you know, and, and then it could fall out. Maybe when I'm on the when I'm on the stretcher, they could fall out, or when they take me out of the, out of the uh, capsule or whatever, you know. And and then you know, suddenly you realize that maybe it wasn't all just a dream, you know, mm. imagination or whatever, you know." And and uh, he, he said uh, he liked the idea, but he said we can't. He said I can't do anything. He said that's that's the big problem. He said that they don't want to do science fiction, and he said they don't want anything that isn't explainable. Yeah. But I didn't I didn't realize I had no idea that uh, there you know that it was there were so many things against him getting it on you know but yeah. but but he actually really did did a sale have you have you seen that well do you have the definitive Twilight Zone collection I do I do is that is that where they have the book and there's a book there and then maybe that's by Zeke uh, and then there's also uh, uh, the the original uh, his his sales pitch to the to the to the to the that's network right. yeah that's right uh-huh. and then he goes in that he leaves into where's everybody you know okay well that's what i was looking at but but um uh i had no idea that there was so much going on that there was so many so many strikes against his getting it on yeah but i mean if they hadn't liked it i mean if they hadn't if he had done something that 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 sponsors would say well i how can i well one of the things they had they said was against it was the fact that they didn't have a regular cast you know and they and uh, he then you know what do you they weren't sure what they were selling at the time mm-hmm. or there's some of the sponsors and, uh, and the network was a little confused about it and they said well how am i going to be there every week or what you know okay. uh it's yeah. not like you know 
Uh, but anyway, I I said uh, he's well, that's when he anyway that's when he explained to me how you know how slim a line he was walking you know and, and I uh, had to be very careful that we did something that was unexplainable and and this certainly was explainable and and by the way of course I didn't know at the time that he he had based that on a real on a real situation you know the. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cover magazine story, uh, the cover story on on Time magazine that, that, uh, during that year uh, about the uh, ex- uh, the uh, the, uh, uh, the experiment that was being done at NASA yeah. with with this with this astronaut whose name was practically the same thing. He said Mike Ferris. I was playing. I think Mike Ferrell was, uh-huh. was the name of the guy in the in the uh, the astronaut. And they were they were testing him if he could withstand the loneliness of a trip and do his and do all of his chores and do all the things that he's supposed to do, you know. Yeah. And uh, that's 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 had stayed in his mind, and he went to that, and that's that's what where Mike Ferris came from, my character. You know, you mentioned talking about ripping the page out of the phone book and putting it in your pocket. Mm-hmm. Did you know that mm-hmm. that Rod actually wrote a a, a story version in in a book version? And in that book version about the stub, yeah. So, so you know I mean, about, about the ticket, yeah. Well, I only know about it. I only know about it because I've read about it. I've heard about it since, and read about it, and, and, and that's in this book too. Because okay. uh, I was not responsible for anything to do with that, with the, with the stub of the theater. That was all. That was what I was responsible for. Was just bringing up the fact that what, establishing something like a page out of the mag, out of the phone book. Yeah. But I never said anything. We didn't have any, and I don't know. You know, uh, I would have had to take a stub you know to um, take a ticket to get into the theater mm-hmm. there's nobody there uh to sell me a ticket i would have had this reach in to get a stub ticket but, but but no it wasn't i had nothing to do with that stub t- with the ticket but right. uh but so i was i you know i hope nobody ever thinks I'm, I'm trying to take credit for something of the rod you know was of rod's of rob's work you know i mean yeah. that he i mean rob was capable of making <laughs> making his decisions all day long around me, you know. I mean, yeah, anyway, yeah. you know. But uh, but even uh, but I, and I wouldn't have dared even say that if I had not known how available he was, you know. And yeah. he, he's always open for suggestions, you know. So um, before we spoke, you you were actually watching the episode. So how does I was that, watching? Yeah. How does that feel now? What what do you think of it? Well, I, you know, I've seen it a number of times through the years, but not really lately. Sat down and and I don't remember. It's it's been many years. I, I don't even remember if I ever really saw. I never saw that that uh, sales pitch that he does uh, before. Mm. Uh, and I'm talking about the various some, three of the shows or four of the shows that 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 would they would be viewing some of his stories. You know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I'd never seen any of that. Yeah. But when 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 uh, where's everybody came on? I, I I found myself reliving all those moments. You know, I mm-hmm. uh, and and also I guess it's my old age, but I I suddenly had tears in my eyes watching it. You know, yeah, it brought back a lot of sweet memories and fun. I, I was I was yeah, and I, I I don't know. I was watching this. I was. I was partly I was Mike Ferris, partly and partly Earl, and you know, and mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but yeah. I was enjoying it a lot, you know. and uh, and uh, I was just, uh, as I said, shilling. I was just giving myself a, that ice cream uh, uh, parlor bit, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know you did um, the DVD a few years ago, didn't you? The DVD commentary. Do you think that might be the last time you saw it? 
Uh, I know. I know. At the time, they called me in to do uh, when they were going to release or re-release the Twilight Zone. I think it was the beginning of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. This is a handful of years ago now, and uh, I uh, and he asked me to do a running commentary. I had never done that, mm-hmm. and then I wasn't really prepared to do that. And I and I really did a lousy job of uh, of watching the show and and commenting on this. I was watching it. I I really had no. I I, I did. I was not educated as to all the all the ins and outs and things that maybe I should have talked about. But uh, I just I, I thought I was pretty dull. Uh, I don't know. Hopefully that wasn't what you heard. No, I think you're too hard on yourself, Earl. It, it was a good commentary, believe me. It was a good one. Earl, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you, and I know that you've spoken about the Twilight Zone before in interviews and, and various things, and I'm sure you will do again. But considering what a monumental show the Twilight Zone became, and you were the first person on screen you were the first leading man i just wondered what's your final word on the show and what it became the night that cbs premiered the first episode where is everybody after the twilight zone and the audience heard mike ferris who was lying on his gurney look up at the night sky and yell up to the moon hey don't go away up there We'll be up there soon, so don't go away. That was October 2nd, 1959. And then less than 10 years later, July 20th, 1969, more than a billion people on Earth listened and watched as an American astronaut named Neil Armstrong stepped off the lunar landing module, Neptune, uttering the following words one small step for man a giant leap for mankind promise made promise kept welcome to the twilight zone wow hell i i've got tears in my eyes to be honest that was beautiful um that was absolutely beautiful thank you i i feel honored to have actually been here and heard you say that but I want to thank you not only for speaking to me today, but, you know, for the happiness that you've brought to millions of people during your career. And from the thousands of Twilight Zone fans, thanks for being our first leading man. We'll always love you for it. And it, it is one of the great honors of my life that I got to talk to you. So, Earl, thank you so much. God, you're certainly welcome. You're much too kind. But thank you for... Li- listen, I, I, I am so proud to be a part of of something that that, that 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 Rod Serling created, and especially this. I get letters from all over the world now about the Twilight Zone, and I am just so honored to be a part of it. Thank you, Rod. After I recorded that interview, I sat for a moment and reflected on what had just happened. You know, doing this show has afforded me some amazing opportunities and experiences And just when you think that you've peaked, you get an opportunity to speak with the great Earl Holliman and to hear him say those beautiful words at the end, it really doesn't get much better than that. And it really was an unforgettable time and an unforgettable experience with a great and wonderful man. So thank you, Earl. I hope you hear this, but thank you so much. You can't imagine how much that meant to me having that conversation. 
But I also have a good friend of the show to thank for making this happen, and his name is Ed Montalvo, and he's one of the friends I met over in Binghamton last year, and he is a Twilight Zone superfan, so much so that he and his collection of Twilight Zone memorabilia is going to be featured on a television show in the US called Collector's Call, which is on the channel MeTV. And it premieres on February 2nd, 2020 at 9.30pm Eastern or 8.30 Central. And I hope to get to see it somehow, but let's show Ed our thanks for making that interview happen and check out his wonderful collection on Collector's Call. So that's MeTV on February 2nd, 9.30 Eastern. And Ed, I really cannot thank you enough for setting that up. Now we're just about to dive into our first episode of season four of The Twilight Zone and you still have time to get your thoughts onto the show by emailing a voice clip of about five minutes or less to tom at thetwilightzonepodcast.com and we are talking about the first episode of season four called In His Image. So this is a slightly new way of presenting the listener feedback section which I'm going to try out. So please, if you want to chime in, please do. But before we do that, I'm going to put out an episode of the podcast that I created for Binghamton last year to celebrate the 60th anniversary. And it was a completely redone version of the first Twilight Zone podcast, looking at where is everybody. So to celebrate this momentous occasion of having the great Earl Holliman on the podcast, that's what I'm going to put in the feed next. And then we'll continue with season four. So I hope you enjoyed this wonderful time with the Twilight Zone's first lead actor. And, you know, I still can't believe it happened. What a lovely man. What a magical time that was. And I will speak to you soon. Hey, don't go away up there. Next time it won't be a dream or a nightmare. Next time it'll be for real. So don't go away. We'll be up there in a little while. The night that CBS premiered the first episode, Where Is Everybody? Off to the Twilight Zone. And the audience heard Mike Ferris, who was lying on his gurney, look up at the night sky and yell up to the moon, hey, don't go away up there. We'll be up there soon, so don't go away. That was October 2nd, 1959. And in less than 10 years later, July 20th, 1969, more than a billion people on Earth listened and watched as an American astronaut named Neil Armstrong stepped off the lunar landing module, Neptune, uttering the following words, one small step for man, a giant leap for mankind. Promise made, promise kept. Welcome to the Twilight Zone.